Episode 5 discusses chronic absenteeism and ways that districts, school sites, and teachers engage students and families to increase school attendance. Our guest, Julia Breedy, shares her experiences and promising practices from the field. One that particularly stood out to me was the importance of knowing the names, faces, and stories of our students and families. We continue to lean into the discussion about how we humanize data as we move away from conversations about percentages, numbers, and colors on a dashboard. I especially related to the perspective and specific recommendations that Julia shared. I hope you enjoy today's discussion. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to EquiChats, Amplifying Voices for Educational Equity, a podcast where we explore systemic equity challenges and discuss innovative approaches to bring about change with hosts Valentina Escanuela and Deborah Hernandez. Hi, everybody. Uh, today's episode is focused on student engagement and LCFF Priority 5. We've talked a lot about this in our past podcasts. Historically, the view on Priority 5 includes collecting data for chronic absenteeism, such as the number and percentage of students that are chronically absent. This indicator itself represents the percentage of students who were absent for 10% or more of the instructional day they were enrolled to attend. For example, if a student was enrolled to attend 180 instructional days and is absent for 18 or more of those days, the student will be considered chronically absent. Now, we have seen over the past four years or so, definitely an uptick in chronic absenteeism, and we've had some great conversation with our past guests. Just to set the stage for when we talk about chronically absent, Here's how it's calculated when we're looking at the current year's data. So we look for the status of the 2022 chronic absenteeism rate indicator, and it's calculated by the number of students chronically absent in the current year divided by the number of students meeting the absenteeism requirement in enrollment. That will equal your chronic absenteeism rate. And just a note on that, students must be enrolled for at least 31 instructional days to be counted in the denominator and chronic absenteeism rate is used to determine the status level of that indicator. So many numbers, numbers, numbers. Today's discussion is not about that. Instead, we want to frame our conversation around educational partnerships with students, families, and communities. Let's ask the deeper questions. How do we as a system create or not create opportunities to partner with students and families whose voices go unheard? How are we in relationship with those that we serve? What biases exist that limit our ability to build meaningful partnerships with students, families, and communities? And what does our data tell us about what and who we value? Why might this be the case? It is important to note that while we are well-intentioned in everything we do in schools, our good intentions do not necessarily translate into the kind of impact we wanna have. Unintentional consequences from decisions we make as leaders in education, often impact those at the margins of our system the most. Today's guest is Julia Breedy, who has been in elementary education for 25 years as a classroom educator, instructional coach, resource teacher, administrator, and is currently serving as an executive leadership coach for the San Diego County Office of Education. She shares that equity has been at the core of her beliefs and reflected in her practice. She has been published in a couple of journals. One is the Journal of School Leadership, 
and the second is in the Journal of Early Childhood Education. She values collaboration with others such as MTSS Collaborative Improvement Network Development. She co-leads for Improving Chronic Absenteeism Network or ICANN, and she is a part of the P3 design team. She shares that her personal accomplishment is her daughter. Welcome, Julia, and thank you for being a guest on EquiChats. Hi, everyone. It's really good to be here, and I'm excited to talk a little bit about chronic absenteeism and how that will be a lever for equity for more students in our systems. Julia, can you share a little bit about yourself and your journey to your current career reality and, and how it relates to educational equity? Yeah, Absolutely. So prior to coming to San Diego County Office of Ed, I worked in a large urban district here in San Diego County for close to 25 years. And my work always was in the space serving students who typically have been our most historically marginalized students. And so my my passion has always been about how do we ensure that regardless of zip code, regardless of race, regardless of gender, how do we make sure that our students who come to us each and every day have the same opportunities so that they're successful? And that's really been uh, pivotal in my work since since my inception as an educator. I would say that that's just continued here at the county. As, as your team knows, I work closely with the ICANN team or the Improving Chronic Absentee Network. And here we really look at interrupting systems so that we can get more students to school. We sometimes create systems that make it hard for kids to come to school. We we send them home because of silly things. We perhaps we don't build relationships with certain families or we over suspense for cer- certain things, right? So the work with ICANN has really helped me have a clearer lens on equity and how do we create systems that really support our students by building relationships by building community, by having strong partnerships with families, by really creating systems and structures that support attendance and really make sure that we're serving the students who need it most in ways that is transformational and in ways that changes changes what our data currently says about why or why not kids are coming to school. It's really interesting when we dig when we dig into the data and and we notice the patterns for for different student demographics, right? And so we know the students that are not attending school, and oftentimes in the educational field, we tend to make decisions and make assumptions about the reasons why these students are not showing up, or the reasons why these parents don't want to come to school and 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 support students, or how some of our parents may not be supporting students at home, right? What are some things that you're seeing within the work that you're doing with schools here in our county that, one, might be concerning, but also, two, that are things that we need to really keep an eye on and really understand in more depth to be able to bring about change in our systems? Yeah, I mean, that's a super meaty question, Valentin. But yeah, absolutely. Let me take a stab at that. And I would say that one of the things within our systems that we really need to check ourselves on is our mindsets or our biases that we come with when we sit around the table and talk about student attendance. You know, in my experience, have heard things like, well, we can't do home visits. Our parents don't like them. Well, what evidence do we have that our parents not don't like them, right? I've been on very 
productive and positive home visits in my experience. And I've actually had very few that were negative. So it's interesting that I often hear that as rationale for why we possibly as a school team couldn't do that. So there's something with that. We also make assumptions like, oh, they're sick. I'm like, my goodness, every last person is sick today? That sounds silly too. So sometimes we make blanket statements around why we think students are absent. So how is it that we as systems can really get at root causes as to why kiddos are absent? I'd say also that something that we're recovering from is just the health health rules, policies, you know, during COVID, there were so many rules about why kids couldn't come to school or how long they needed to stay home. And uh, systems were having to change requirements and policies on a regular basis based on what health code was saying, right? And so those things have changed, yet our policies are lagging and we still have some systems that are perpetuating things that were happening two years ago because we were really trying to figure out really how long kids needed to be at, to be at home before they could return. Mm-hmm. And so um, we are still coming back from that. And so I would say that that's another structural piece, like let's get really clear on our health policies. Of course, they need to be in line with, you know, the state and health code and all of those things, but getting really clear and then messaging appropriately. We often struggle with our young learners coming to school too. And our young learners are often reliant on a responsible adult or an older sibling to bring them to school. And so we really try to message around the importance of starting attendance strong in our younger grades. Because when you really look at data, our TK kinder grades are the grades that have the greatest chronic absenteeism. It typically isn't our older grades. It's our TK and kinder. And so how do we start those relationships with our families and that communication at the inception of school so that we can really be in partnership with our families and ensure that they have the right knowledge too about what attendance means, right? And we also find that data shows that typically students who start out as chronically absent in TK, guess what? They're chronically absent in kinder in first grade in second grade in third grade and it continues. And then what happens is their reading isn't that proficient. They have poor student relationships, teacher relationships. Like it creates these other inequities as a result of chronic absenteeism. So that's something that we're really trying to circumvent and provide support around so that we can interrupt chronic absenteeism. Thanks for that. You know, you, you made me think of a lot of things. There's a couple I'd like to lift, right? One is my own experience too. So I, I'm a, a grandmother, proud grandmother. I talk about my grandson whenever I can. He's in second grade now. You're so right with the policies lagging and that hyper-awareness on illness, right? So he has a cough or he has a fever and we have to keep him home and we, you know, we have to keep him for a certain number of days. He has to be fever-free and, and all of these you know, policies that were so strict during COVID era is really still trickling. And even if it's not still that same policy, it's in our minds, right? Like we have to keep him home. He has to stay away to be in quarantine, like all these words we would never said like four years ago, right? Absolutely, yeah. Thank you for bringing that part up. Mm -hmm. I also wanted to like go a little deeper in something you said and and really lean in on your experience on promising practices, especially when we talk about students at the margins, right? 
And what are some promising practices that you've seen on building those trusting relationships? I heard you say that a couple of times, mm -hmm. and we are really interested in what that looks like, especially for students at the margins of our systems. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I really appreciate that question. I think one of the very first things to do, too, before we even identify what some promising practices could be, is really making sure that the teams who are working on this are really cognizant about we are here in partnership and that we are here not to change you. We are not here to fix you. We are here because we want to work together and identify barriers and support you in ways so that your family is feels connected to us, that you feel a sense of belonging. Your kids want to come to school. And I think in the past, we've had a very punitive approach to attendance. I mean, we think about the SAR process and those letters that go out, right? And there's really been a lot of work in changing that narrative because the work around attendance is about names, faces, and stories. And so when we think about building partnerships or sense, sense of belonging or, or key practices that are going to help this, this work along is really thinking about what are the opportunities that we have to build relationships, right? How many opportunities do our families have to come onto campus prior to even coming to the first day of school, right? Mm -hmm. Are we setting yeah. up opportunities for there to be joy and happiness and trusting relationships before we bring our kiddos in, send <laughs> close the doors, yeah. send all the parents home and say, see you at three? Yes. <laughs> that, that, that's not always warm and uh, feels good, right? So one of the things that we like to think about is like, what are the conditions that we create so that families do feel that sense of connection and joy, right? Some of the other things that we do too is, and this is really once things continue to, to happen, is, um, and we identify that maybe certain students need more, like thinking about a multi-tiered system of support, right? Mm -hmm. What do we yeah. do for all students? What do we do for a group of students with more frequency and duration? And how do we know that's working? And so some of the things that we do is a two by 10, what we call a two by 10, a check-in. So mm -hmm. how that's defined is for 10 days, for two minutes a day, there is a caring adult who is meeting with a child that says, hey, what's going on? And it's not even about attendance. It's about me finding out that you hate peanut butter, but love mayonnaise. Yeah. It's about <laughs> me finding out that you have this special stuffy that you like to play with or that you love to hang with your friends after school and you're a mean soccer player. So yeah. it's really about finding those and collecting that street data that is it, that helps us understand the human not just the number of absences they have. A two by 10 strategy is definitely something we do. Additionally, we use postcards and communication. So we write personalized letters or have written personalized letters to students who were excited they've improved. And then gosh, we send it home. And who also reads those letters, not just the student, yeah. but the parents and families as well, or they're being read to the student, right? So those are just a few ways that we've tried to work to build relationship and connection when we've identified attendance to be an, a concern for a particular child and or family. You know, Julia, you brought up a lot of great ideas and, and actions that we can take to improve chronic absenteeism. Yeah. 
as schools and districts begin to develop their their new uh, three-year LCAP plan, right, for their districts, the things that you just mentioned right now, we don't see in LCAPs, mm. right? We mm-hmm. see the percentage of students that are that are chronically absent. We see right. We see all of our demographic student demographics, and you know we see things like you know you know hundred percent of our students are going to have access to materials, like all mm-hmm. these things you know, yeah. and different priorities, right? Mm-hmm. That are supposed to help address this idea of chronic absenteeism. Mm-hmm. But what you just mentioned, you're talking about that adaptive work, mm-hmm. right? That relational work, mm-hmm. the things that we need to work on with the adults in the system to really bring about this mindset of like it's relationships that really bring students and families right to our school sites. Mm-hmm. And so as you think about those examples that you gave us, like what would be some good metrics to capture as a result of of implementing some of these practices in our in our schools and districts? Mm-hmm. Well, that's a great question, Valentine. And so a couple of things. I think, too, you have to collect big metrics, right? You have to know how many students are absent, how many are chronically absent. You have to know what your ADA is. In the network that I help co-lead is we call it tree tree data and forest data. Like you have to be able to see the forest, but you have to look at individual trees, which is our, our students, their names, their faces and stories. And so I would say absolutely you need that big picture data because that gives you also the health of your system. From an MTSS background, I always like to think about like my overall universal health of my system. But we know when we look at ADA, that gives me percentages. That doesn't give me student names and stories. And so one of the things that we do recommend and coach around with our ICANN network is we really get literally lists of names and spreadsheets of kids' names, and then we adapt them. And then we start we start bringing in people around the table. Like, do we have the right people to even talk about these kids? Like our school clerks in our office who man the phones every day and speak with the community every single day, they are a wealth of knowledge. The data they have and they collect is invaluable to the work, Right. I can't tell you how many meetings I've been on. They're like, gosh, it'd be really nice to know why this kid was absent. Maybe we should ask so-and-so in the office. And my question is like, how come she's not on this team, right? Like get the right people around the table to talk about the right data, to get the names, the faces, the stories. You have to know the people who know the kids. So I would definitely do that. The other thing I would recommend is as you think about your data, it's more than just spreadsheets. There's also like narrative data that different people in the system need to know. So counselors, the social workers, right? Now, without compromising any confidentiality or whatnot, schools, I would encourage them to have systems in order to do that in a very confidential, yet responsive, professionally responsible way so that the narrative of these students isn't lost because the narrative also changes over time how well somebody might be doing, how concerned we might be over a kiddo. So I guess my point is you asked me about metrics. It's about really designing metrics in ways that is responsive and frequent. Like teams need to look at school data around attendance all the time because in five, 10 days, you can have, it's a moving target all the time. You have to be on top of that data on a regular basis and have created a system so that you feel productive because I'll tell you, having worked with lots of teams where we are, we might have 200 kids who are chronically absent. That becomes really overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So how do you also look at groups of students without knowing that we pay attention to everyone? I would not want everyone to, I wouldn't want anyone to think that 
we we don't focus on a certain group of students. Yet we also have to enable our teams to look at data in ways that they feel they have some influence that it doesn't become so overwhelming. They can't do anything in the work. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So I would say, I mean, back to your main question, big data, individual student data and student data and looking at it regularly. I love it. I mean, I, I think that, you know, when we mean me and Deb have this conversation all the time, right? We, we were always talking about like the LCAP and how to support districts with LCAP and the narratives, the stories, like those kinds of metrics, right? That we can, the qualitative data that we can mm -hmm. collect from the experiences of our students and our families is so valuable to the work. Mm -hmm. And so it doesn't just have to be that big, you know, map data, right? Or that big satellite data, but also it's really about like those experiences that are really tell us exactly what is happening in our system. Yeah, for sure. The other thing I might add to is like from a systemic perspective, because I've had the opportunity and gift of going different places, there's different proficiency levels from our office staff to our, and I don't mean like in terms of their care, but like how they even get technical about the work. Mm -hmm. So I would recommend that districts invest in supporting their people so that they are equipped and have the capacity to pull the data. Because it's really frustrating going to a meeting and you don't have the right data or it's not the data we were expecting we were going to find because there's so much data to mine through. And when you don't have the right data, it's hard to make the best decisions in order to support students. So, and I think that's a systemic thing as well. Like if, at, if for LCAP, we want to look at student uh, engagement under absenteeism, can we as a district say all of our clerks are trained in this way to pull data in this way so that our teams can look at it? So I don't know. I mean, that potentially could be a metric, right? Like how well are we equipping our teams to even access the data so that teams can do the name face story work? Yeah, that's great. And you, you made me think about that systems level work that needs to be done, right? And so mm -hmm. we work with supporting not only LCAP writers, but other districts who are eligible for differentiated assistance. And one tool that we like to use is that data use self-assessment tool. Mm -hmm. And that looks at the four different areas, right? It looks at systems like you're talking about. Like, do we have... Um, is data widely accessible to everybody and in useful forms, right? So you're not just like, like have this huge spreadsheet with hundreds of entries, right? But is it put together and organized in a way that people are, is accessible to all people? Is it validated? Is it correct and complete, right? Then the other area is that knowledge piece, like how do you apply data to do data analysis and how do you communicate those findings, right? So how do you have that in place? And then what kind of practices are you using, such as integrating that data analysis into decision-making? And that can assist with your LCAP work, right? Exactly what you're talking about, pulling that in. How can we be intentional with that and use the, the daily activities and do more frequently, like you said, so that we can have that data readily available? And then finally, the where I wanted to lead into was a conversation about leadership. Right. Mm -hmm. So how, you know, when we look at the time and resources that's needed to do this kind of work, right, we're not talking about being able, like being a classroom teacher or being an office tech or being a principal of a school, being able to do this without some specific intentional structures in place to do this work, right? Absolutely. And so what I wanted to, to ask you and to bring up is 
the alignment with this work, I've heard you talk about almost every single theme that's in the equity blueprint for action here at the County Office of Education. One is that um, student voice and advocacy, right? So making sure that we're talking to students, finding out from them, we're building those relationships with those students. Secondly, is that parent voice, right? And making sure that we're listening to parents and asking them like why students are absent, you know, what, what kind of barriers can we break down? How can, how can we support the work? Also talking about the um, assets-based mindsets. How do we talk about students with, you know, or parents with them, but also around the table when we're making decisions, right? How are we shifting our language from a deficit-based language, like talking about gaps in, in students or fixing something? How do we shift that language to opportunities to learn and understand from our students and parents? And then finally, the leading up to the question here is about what kind of recommendation support do you have for socially conscious leaders mm. in this work, right? What kind of recommendations when you're taking that leadership stance at a, at a school site or being a teacher leader or being a, a leader in the district, what kind of recommendations do you have to do this work? Great question. Presence, you need to be there. I've, I'll tell you my um, teams that I've had the opportunity to coach, the greatest advocate on the teams often is the school leader, right? They have some positional authority to make decisions about certain things. And so that's helpful when you're in the room, right? The other thing I would recommend too is like our leaders need to get proximate. They need to get close to these kids. They need to be part of this work. So this idea of getting proximate is yes, with student and families, and it's also with teachers around communication. I find that sometimes leaders are doing this great work with this mighty team of four, yet there are 60 people on campus. Really, we are all attendance strategists. So leaders can really think about growing that capacity and thinking about that sphere of influence so that the work is balanced in a collective way that uh, is embraced by all. So present, proximate, communication, build that sphere of influence. The other thing I would say as a recommendation for leaders is put it on the calendar. Like if you're going to talk about attendance, schedule it and schedule it every week for the 36 weeks that you're in school and then your summer retreats. Because if you don't calendar it, it doesn't happen. And then after you calendar it, I would say, I'm not to be disturbed during this time. Like this is non-negotiable, just like you would do if you were walking classrooms, right? Like I, this is so important that we understand students. Now I'm not talking if there's a huge emergency, of course not. I'm talking about that. Those little day-to-day things that are competing commitments um, that often take you away from the true work. So build that infrastructure so that the work can happen and make sure it's not compromised. I think that those would be my biggest takeaways or advice, I guess. Yes. You know, you made me think of something as you were talking. And when we think about leadership and Deb, you mentioned this, right? Like creating the structures, the intentionality around like structures and time for, you know, people to engage in these conversations, to come together, to learn. But I also believe, and I see this in in the work that I do within, you know, our equity work um, here at the county office, we assume and we make the assumption that teachers know how to engage parents. Mm -hmm. You're right. Right. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. so because we make that assumption, we don't spend the time 
right? And the effort building capacity mm -hmm. in how to engage yeah. parents, mm -hmm. right, in intentional ways, yeah. right, that make them feel like they belong, mm -hmm. that honor their cultures and their values, right? And their beliefs. And how do we bring that into our classrooms so that we can utilize those as assets to be able to serve our students, right? Mm -hmm. So so as, as you were talking, I was like, yeah, and, and, and that making that connection of like the other thing I see too is that assumption that teachers know how to engage parents and, and that is 100% not true, right? And so yes. how do we understand where our teachers are in the system around engagement of families and, and students and how do we help them and support them in building their capacity and being able to bring right parents into into their children's education so just something that you know came to mind as you were as you were talking so thank you for that we also assume that even district personnel know how to do it right i mean it's, th it's throughout the whole system like when we what we try to think about is the entire system how do we communicate it and how do we align the efforts that we're doing, right? Even with expectations, like here's expectation, simple example that we hear often is that building those relationships, teacher meets the students at the door, right? That's just an example, simple one. And then you have you have these pockets of excellence where people, like where you see that at one school is happening really well. And perhaps when you look at attendance rates, that's a simple example of maybe attendance rates we're higher, right, in places that that kind of work is happening. Is there a, a policy, a process, an expectation that that is happening everywhere? Many times the district has a definition or like an expectation or doesn't get into the details, right? right. We're increasing parent engagement. Wonderful. So what does that mean when you're talking to site principals? What does that mean when you're talking to classroom teachers? What does it mean when you're talking to, you know, I mean, really getting into that deep level conversation of all levels of the system is needed. Absolutely, for sure. I mean, that that speaks to the, the fidelity of how well is something done, right? It's not just about student outcome data. There's fidelity and capacity data, which means you have to think about the process measures and the supports in order to have that happen. We know how important teachers are, right? And we're just curious about what teacher or person has had the most impact on you as it pertains to your equity work. And maybe you can elaborate a little bit on why that is. Oh, absolutely. I would say Stacy Jones has been a huge uh, equity warrior and really an inspiration to me. Um, she was, this is actually a fun story. I knew her as a child because my mother and her, and her sister were good friends. But then okay. when I moved down to college, like she kind of took me under her wing and then she hired me as a first year teacher. Oh, wow. And, and um, then um, my my work lived in Southeast San Diego and really working around literacy. And we didn't know what it was. We didn't call it MTSS back then. Like we didn't have that <laughs> language or whatnot. But the work we did was really about multi-tiered systems, of, a system of support where we were supporting all kids. And she was just someone who knew how to have the hard conversation and nice. always, always kept kids on her shoulder. It wasn't personal, but this is the work we had to do. In my last job as a school principal, I actually hired her daughter. Isn't that interesting? Oh, wow. Circle. And we're still very <laughs> close. And we often talk about equity in education. And yeah, I would say that she's been a huge driver and in my formation as an equity leader. Oh, that's wonderful. That The circle of life, right? Yeah. Right? For me, um, I always talk about my second grade teacher, Ms. Gallegos. 
Yeah. You know, I actually just led a session this morning with uh, our geo lead folks, and and that's actually who I talked about oh. <laughs> as our as our intro to our session today, and really trying just to connect on a human level with others around, you know, who are those important people in our lives that kind of have shaped us into who we are now as educators. Yeah. And so we all have that one person or those two people or those three people, right, in our in our mm-hmm. educational careers that really uh, shaped who we are as educators. So you know, it's always good to humanize ourselves right in in a way that oftentimes we don't take time to do in in the in, in education so uh so with in the in that spirit all right julia uh we like to humanize our our guests a little bit more and so we're gonna we're gonna get into things that you know rapid fire questions and you're gonna think about it kind of give us your best answer at whatever comes to mind uh, we it. got four four questions for you i'm ready let's do it all right here we go so favorite movie Ooh, my cousin Vinny. Oh wow! That's nice. A good movie. It's hysterical. Nice. I yeah. love it. Nice. Oh my god! Here. That's and Marissa good. Tomei. She has excellent girl power. I love it. Yes, she does. Oh, I love it. Nice. Your favorite book? Ooh, I have two: Molokini or Hotel on the Corner of Bitter and Sweet. Oh, right. nice. Okay. All right. Those are two very different books. Very different, but yeah. uh, both excellent. How about dogs or cats? Dogs and specifically English bulldogs. Oh, nice. Nice. Do you have an English bulldog? I did, but he has, you know, mm-hmm. gone over the rainbow bridge. And now my yes. my heart really wants a dog, but my head doesn't. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel you on that one. I am mm-hmm. with you on that one. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, I know. I, I don't think I'm emotionally ready for dog. It's really mm-hmm. hard. You know what? They're, they're such a part of your family. We have um, geriatric animals right now. We have a cat who's 15 and the dog oh, is th- she actually turns 13 today. And oh, wow. he's a golden retriever, right? And he's all white and he gets up really slow. And, you know, you can just see how, you know, how how much time we have left. It's like we try to spend, like we're, we're, we're to the point where we're like, boiling tur- um, turkey and chicken for him we're like you're getting the best we're just yeah. giving you the best you know we're at that point because we just love him so so much yeah been a part of our family for so long love dogs and then the last question we have for you is in the spirit of the holidays uh your favorite holiday meal Ooh, can it just be oh no i know what it is so um i'm italian and so we, and my father's birthday was on Christmas day. Okay. So we always had my great grandmother's like sauce and meatballs and homemade pasta. Oh so I know gosh. that is not a traditional Christmas meal, yes. but it brings up great memories and it is my favorite. Nice. That's awesome. Real nice. Just, we've just learned how to make um, homemade pasta. Mm-hmm. It is a labor of love for sure. It is. It is. <laughs> takes some time. What's your favorite, um, Valentine? Favorite holiday meal? Oh, my mom's tamales. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah, her green tamales specifically. So, I just called her yesterday, and I got. I'm trying to get her recipe so we can try to make her recipe. So we got to okay. get all the stuff. Um, but my mom's um green chili is is special. So the rajas, the green chili with cheese. No, like uh um pork and 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 pork. green green chili. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, she don't play. She's mm. yeah, she is her her green chili is uh is is special. Yeah, for sure. Oh, amazing. So we um our favorite holiday and actually it's like like I think seasonal is pozole, right? Mm. So 
I, I make my family wait. Like, of course they can eat at the restaurant so they can get, I will not make it until the holidays. And I'm like this year I'm, I'm waiting to, uh, we'll have, so we can have it for Christmas morning. And so they're like, no, it's okay. Make it before them. Like, no, I want you to be entojado. So that means like, I want you to crave it so much before you have it. And so I'm making them wait. And I do a recipe that um, has both pork and chicken in it. So mm -hmm. we do both instead. Sometimes it's just one or the other, like pork. Nice. I'm hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been such a pleasure having you on, Julia. And just your wealth of knowledge has come through. We really appreciate you taking time with us and sharing, especially something that stood out to me. It was the names, faces, and stories that really stood out to me. And I just want to end on that because um, you brought that to the surface and it's really a way to combat um, chronic absenteeism and instead of looking at the percentages and numbers of students. It really humanizes our students. So thank you for that. Absolutely. Thank you. It was a pleasure. Oh, 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 oh,